Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 67 with our guest, Corey Blake. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, guys. Thank you for joining us today. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Roundtable Companies, whose purpose is to tell the story behind yours. He has spent 12 years helping business leaders use storytelling to transform themselves and their organizations. He pioneered the business comic book, packaging and publishing dozens of titles, including bestsellers by Tony Shea, Marshall Goldsmith, and Robert Cialdini. Prior to starting RTC in 2005, he was a professional actor in Los Angeles, get this, starring in one of the 50 greatest Super Bowl commercials of all time. We'll talk about that. He earned his SAG Union card, Screen Actors Guild, working eight days on the film Fight Club. Imagine that. And among numerous television shows, he guest starred and co-starred on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The Shield. To make matters even better, his TEDx talk is titled Vulnerability is Sexy, and he knows it. I don't know. It's just called Vulnerability is Sexy. Um, And he has 18,000 views on that video. Let's bring him right into the show officially. It's Corey Blake. Thanks, Josh. I'm finding myself just smiling with so much enthusiasm because you're just so much fun. I just appreciate the energy. This is going to be a great time. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that. So like I said earlier, before we went on, um, we have a lot of uh, similarities in... uh, in, in, in the past, uh, I also spent a good deal of time in the acting and filmmaking world, but on the other coast in New York. Um, so we'll get to that. Very excited to learn all about that. I want to start, though, with the whole concept of storytelling. I, for all of my business life, I've always heard how important storytelling is, and I've always been very aware of, I don't know, just trying to get it right. How does one approach storytelling? How do we implement it? How do we get it right? Holy smokes, what a question to start off with. Look, yeah, easy, easy. Right, ba-boom. Small, right. You do these three things and everything's perfect. 
for me, the SVB. Oh my God. First off, it's a reframe from, um, from telling the story that I think I'm supposed to tell to get me where I want to go to sharing an authentic story, right? That even potentially risks judgment. So I think ultimately the first shift that we'll talk about, right, is that is the importance of that reframe. So many organizations and our Facebook feeds are full of broadcasting. Here's what I want you to know about me. And I, and I term it as here's what I want you to know in order to help me get where I want to go. Mm. By the way, crossover back to my LA days. That's what I did for a long period of time and eventually became very unhappy having followed that path. Right. So I understand what it is to Can be a broadcaster. Can you say that path again? What is yeah, it? The, here's the, what the, I want you to know. The, the, the path of uh, when I was in Los Angeles, going, being what I thought Los Angeles wanted me to be in order for me to be successful. Losing myself in that. And yeah. I'm sure a number of people can relate to that. It's a very human thing that we do, right? Uh, so yeah, so storytelling, I think ultimately, um, first off, acknowledging that, that stories are powerful when they are authentic and when they allow the audience to have their own opinion about the story. Hmm. Okay. Um, I know that, um, as you pointed out, in the L.A. world, um, I, and, and I'm sure others have too, I extended that to my entire life, right? I showed up as the person that I wanted, that, that I thought others wanted me to be. So um, completely relate to that. So when we're talking about storytelling, I, I love that reframe. It's because you're, one of your things is, like you said, not only authentic, but vulnerability. So am I... I then, if in my business, do you help me figure out what my story is or, or is it already evident? How does that work with a client? Uh, so it's very uh, Michelangelo in its, in its approach, which is how do we carve away all this stuff that's an obstacle to right, the essence of you or the organization. Um, at the end of the day, I think um, we, as human beings, um, have this um, uh, inability to be objective about our impression of the world. Like there's, it's huge, right? And so storytelling is about putting a frame around something so someone can view it and gain a strong understanding and feel like they see and hear you. But our ability to put that frame around this huge expansiveness, super challenging. I mentioned to you earlier that we'll probably dive into, you know, one of my first pivotal moments that kind of defined my path when I was five years old. I didn't unpack that until my late thirties. Right, and really understand how it has influenced my sense of purpose and what I have devoted so much time and energy of my life to. So similarly, when we work with organizations or with CEOs or with thought leaders, um, having some support in being able to unpack that is a huge deal. It's not something that's necessarily intuitive to us. Mm. Uh, I'm right now um, going going through that through my my brand, the Hidden Entrepreneur. I I created this because I realized at that time, my goodness, I've been hiding. I've been hiding every part of myself, showing up in all these situations um, as somebody who is needy, desperate, insecure, trying to appeal to others and trying to gain the approval of others while suppressing and avoiding, neglecting all of my power, all of my skills, all of my ability. So it's to, to, to sort of attach to what you said, I have to really see, like, with this whole unpacking, right? I have to sort of see what I was doing versus what I am doing now and frame that in the way. So I, I love what you brought up. I think, um, I think there, there are two kind of ways that we come at stories. One is from that fear imposter place, right? And we all deal with it. 
through a portion of our lives, some of us, the majority of our lives, and some of us, you know, we, we get lucky to have moments where we don't feel like such an imposter, right? And they're usually fleeting. <laughs> but when we come from that fear place, we tend to tell um, the kinds of stories that are, that control mm. the, the observer's, you know, capacity for, for, for their reaction. And yet when we, uh, what I find is that when we come from a place of authenticity and are willing to share the stories that are harder for us, that, that where we may feel a sense of shame or humiliation, um, we actually go from, from hierarchy and pedestals of who's better than who to um, equalizing our humanity because we can all relate. Even if we haven't had those similar experiences, we can relate to our pain in mm. different ways than we relate to our, our differences in success. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Um, your TED Talk titled Vulnerability is Sexy. How do you, how do you define vulnerability? What does that really mean? Uh, for me, vulnerability um, um, as a verb is, um, is an experience I have when I say something out loud to a witness uh, where I can feel in myself my voice shaking. When I'm oftentimes saying something for the first time aloud, admitting something, um, saying something that I've never even said to myself. So it is the act of, uh, it's an act of courage in sharing something for which uh, I could inherently be judged, right? There has to be an opportunity for judgment or rejection, or there is no risk, in which case there is no vulnerability. And then therefore there is no reward to go with that phrase, no risk, no reward. Well, or, or I mean, <laughs> that's an interesting question because I think, when I come, when I come from uh, storytelling from the imposter place, um, I can be rewarded for that, and I can and I can mistake that reward for validation for that approach, and then I can get mm. stuck in that approach for a long period of my life. Mm. Do we have to worry, quote unquote, about being too vulnerable? Is there too much? I, I think it's a fair question, and a cons and I think it's something to be aware of. Um, as I have practiced vulnerability, particularly over the last decade, relatively aggressively, um, there, like I have a firm grasp on on when I am safe within you know, to to be vulnerable and when I feel less safe, um, and and because I have that sense of awareness that I've developed, right? I think that um, uh, I, I have less concern. But I think it's very fair for someone who's in an ecosystem, let's say at work where they have not yet really pushed up against the boundaries of what is safe, I, I think it's appropriate to be, uh, to be careful. Like as an example, when we support people in, the, in a book writing process, which typically is like a full year, for nine months, we tell people, like, this is not for sharing yet. You can share it within our team, but it's really fragile. And when we share things before we are ready to share them at a certain scale, it can be, um, it can be very, um, create a lot of scar tissue and we may, we may never try again. We may actually get derailed. So we actually, like, I, I look at vulnerability from the standpoint of practicing it concentrically. I do it in a really safe place first, right? And then I go slightly less safe, slight, slightly less safe, slightly less safe. And then there comes a point at which I recognize, okay, it's ready for the world. But if I go out to the world first, before I've tested it, before I've really understood how people can hear it or can't hear it, right? Before I've set certain parameters, I can do damage to myself. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a very fair question and it, and it deserves some thought. I love it. Can we take the, the idea 
or concept of vulnerability and make it tangible or structural in even as an example are there different types of vulnerability what works for the entrepreneur oh lovely question um so so I'm a believer in extreme vulnerability and the value of that. Um, I also believe there's a place at which it becomes dangerous. And I have discovered that there is often uh, another side after the danger that makes the danger worthwhile. Go ahead. <laughs> and yet the only way that I came to that realization was through a moment where I literally internally said, holy shit, did I just blow up my company? <laughs> so I've, I've practiced it to that degree, right? Um, but that's not to say that everyone needs to push to that extreme. But, um, but practically speaking, I think the kinds of vulnerability, particularly as it pertains to, you said, the entrepreneur, the leader, um, first off, an awareness that the leader sets the tone for the organization with their vulnerability. If I'm only comfortable with a foot you know, of a, a depth in a pool, ain't nobody around me going to dive in because they know they're going to crack their head open, right? So if I'm willing to set the tone that this is a six-foot pool of water, mm-hmm. Right. People will play around. They, they might not go to six feet, but they might go to four. Right. So, so certainly the leader recognizing that they set the tone. And the more that we are willing as leaders to share our humanity, the more that we let others around us know that humanity has a place in the environment where we work. Mm. Let's segue perfectly to the world of comedy. I know we both have, as you do a spit take. Spit take. Exactly, right? You saw it coming, right? I did it. It was perfectly timed on your part. <laughs> the world of comedy. Uh, for those not viewing this, uh, Corey was taking a sip as, as soon as I said it. And for some reason, there was, um, there was a, a comedic element to it, right? Um, so, so, so the world of comedy, um, what of it? What place does it, right? Small question. <laughs> What of it? What, what place does comedy have in all we're doing? Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Harold Klorman. And as a, a, a New York junkie, so you might be familiar with Harold. Harold Klorman founded the group theater in 1935, which eventually became Broadway and then eventually became Hollywood. And he studied with greats and, and brought together people like Clifford Odets and Sanford Meisner. Just a phenomenal group of people. And he felt the responsibility to bring together artists to speak to the day, what was going on in society. And he has a quote, um, and I paraphrase it, but it's, um, the truth is bitter. It's like castor oil. We don't want it. It's hard to swallow. And so we open their mouths with laughter and then we pour it in. So for me, (laughs) I'm sorry, let me just let that sit for a minute because that's amazing. One more time, if you please, from the top, back to one. Back to one, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. The truth truth is like castor oil. It's bitter and hard to swallow. We don't want it. And so we open their mouths with laughter and then we pour it in. Wow. So that suggests that you're going to get the hard truth after a comedic laugh. I think it applies to entertainment in general for me and my experience, but I think, um, and, and Harold Klerman and the group theater certainly were a very dramatic group that also knew how to use comedy. But when I look at my past as an actor in Hollywood doing a lot of commercials, right, I used my gifts to pour Mountain Dew, sugar water, down people's throats, right? Great so there's a moment, there's a moment of, of recognition of I have a responsibility as an artist for, for when I open people up emotionally, what am I then doing with that gift? And we can use it to sell cheeseburgers. We can do that. 
and it works, works really well. Um, but we also can do it to, to use the opportunity to improve the world. And is that now what you're doing? Is that what I've heard? You used to do it in the, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately I, yes. There, there came a point at which I took responsibility for what I do when I get people into that space because I'm addicted to that, right? I'm addicted to that performance energy, that connective moment when, when we do open our hearts and uh, because I know what it feels like to build a career off of not necessarily being responsible with that gift, there came a point at which I rejected that or it rejected me. I'm not sure. I got spit out of the system to some degree, right, from my own discontent in that. Yeah. And, um, and my trajectory became a commitment to, um, to using that talent for good. Mm. Well, I'd love to um, unravel some of your um, stick on this uh, Hollywood credits resume tangent, sure. if, sure. if you don't mind exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, you started in one of the 50 greatest Super Bowl commercials of all time. Which one was that? So it was a Mountain Dew commercial. It was a takeoff on Bohemian Rhapsody, very popular right now. Uh, came out in 2000. First airing was the, it was the first commercial that aired after the second half kickoff of the Super Bowl uh, year. Eventually, uh, that commercial became the very first commercial, I believe, to ever air in movie theaters, right? Oh, wow. We're all very happy about that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, played all around the world. It was a very popular spot. Earned me a lot of like crazy money. Um, you know, as an actor, when you're working in entertainment, um, when you're working in front of the camera, you earn your day rate. And then everything else that you're going to earn is out of your control. It's just relative to how things air. At least it was back then. Residuals. And residual income. And there were, there were plenty of days where I would walk to the mailbox day after day after day, and there'd just be thousands of dollars in checks every single day. So it's a very bizarre experience, yeah. particularly when at the same time you're having an identity crisis of, is this what I'm meant to do? The, and, the, and the world seems to be validating it financially. Really, wow. really confusing time. Wow. How did you, um, how did you first enter Hollywood? What was the road? Uh, I, I have a, I have a degree in theater from Millican university, which is South of Chicago. We send a lot of folks to Broadway and some to LA, uh, small school, um, brilliant liberal arts college. And, and then I've actually, after four years of really working hard within that program and being big fish in a small pond, um, I wanted to get the heck out of all that crap. And so I, a buddy of mine was like, I'm going to Portland. Do you want to come with? I was like, get me out of here. So I went to Portland for six months. And then thankfully, a, a friend of mine, I loved Portland. I loved it. And it really wasn't where I was meant to be at the time. A friend of mine was performing in Virginia. And he called and said, I will drive from Virginia to Portland across the country to come and get you. If you'd like to go down to LA, we have some of our graduating class who's also going there. And let's go meet them. And I said yes to that. And found myself in Hollywood. In Hollywood, took about three years for me to get my feet under me and start generating some work and actually starting to get paid as an actor. And then it was off to the races for a while. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, I could totally relate to a lot of that. I entered through the other coast, um, mm -hmm. but in eighth grade, I got bit by the bug because I was um, I had inadvertently auditioned for the school play, which was a drug awareness play, and I got. Um, I got the role of comic relief, which, you know, is, is the one that's supposed to make the audience laugh. Um, and I didn't know, I, I didn't know what, what to do, but I was, you know, jumping around on the stage as directed and hundreds of my, uh, you know, peers out there were laughing. So I was like, well, I haven't gotten the attention anywhere else. 
This is the attention I crave. Feels good. I want to be an actor. I want more of this. So I pursued it through high school and then uh, uh, college and then went to New York. But I know looking back, I was, now now granted, I had some skill, some ability, some talent, um, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. um, But it was it was incorrectly seeking approval and the outside mm-hmm. accolades that, you know, you, you then come home and it's very lonely and very dark and all that. Did you have a similar path? <laughs> um, so when I was uh, growing up, I, I grew up a Jewish kid on the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. And I had a, a Jewish mother who poured the way I talk about it is she poured all of her light into me. I had an older sister who, in comparison, I think, I think my, my impression is received very little of my mother's energy in that way, and I was the central focus. Now, my, my, my mother burned so brightly in my world that even though I had other people who were infusing my world with light, they were nothing in comparison. Like, she was the sun, right? Okay. And, and then when I turned five years old, my mother was struck with severe depression, and her light went out for a year. Right. While they figured out her medication, she was hospitalized for a while. And in the absence of my mother's light, I, was, I felt totally in darkness, didn't understand the world, didn't understand my place in the world, because not only was my mother the sun, but she made me the center of the universe, right? Like it all revolved around me. Shocking Jewish kid, right? <laughs> and, and so- And you're not a doctor? And, and you're not a doctor. <laughs> well, for, for, for my mother, right, because- um, she was really struggling with her own happiness during that year. Um, that meant that the person who was who had been the safest person in my life became the most dangerous for that year. Mm. And so I had to learn how to read a room in order to know where was mom, right? And I had to learn the difference between the language that was being used because in that day it was everything's fine, honey. And subtext. Right? And the subtext of this is totally screwed up right now. And that that so that period of a year became the birth of what I call my gift now. Mm. Right. And because I can, because if you take that year and sandwich it on other side with all the confidence that was poured into me by being the center of her universe, I'm someone who is, has the confidence to speak up when I see a gap in that alignment between our walk and our talk between our language and our behavior. Mm. Right. And I'm really, really proficient at reading the energy of other people and the room and I'm willing to speak to that right, because of that competence. So all of that took shape in that year when I had no idea, of course, what's happening at that time. But that's, that was the birth of that. Hmm. And comedy became um, an outlet because if I could make mom laugh, life was easier. So it became a muscle I started flexing at that age. And it worked there. And so this is what I think as human beings, we all do with, with pain that turns into survival mechanism. When that survival mechanism works, it becomes the hammer to every nail that we can find, right? And so I used comedy and performance pretty much throughout my whole life for a really long time to a degree where I would say it was even borderline manipulative or not even borderline. It was manipulative because it was my tactic because if I could make myself the center of your universe, I was repeating that behavior that felt good when I was a kid. So all of that summed up, I think, is in response to your question, is mm. right, the, the, the techniques that I used when I was younger and, um, and that desire for um, certain outcomes that I would use as I moved off into L.A., using comedy became a muscle that I was very proficient at and thought would get me what I wanted until it 
wasn't enough. Wow. Yeah, I've learned um, so much about what you said um, as, as truth. And an interesting little little tweak for me, the comedy was the full mask. If I could completely uh, lead with the comedy and make others laugh, I wouldn't have to reveal. So it was the cover, right? I didn't care about making them laugh to be the center. I just didn't want the attention mm. on me. So I'm like, make you laugh. And, you know, it, it's sort of like the magician who's like, you know, don't look over here. It's like the... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm right. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. Mis total misdirection because I wanted to do everything I could to not, not have an awkward moment where you might ask me a question or um, ha have a moment where you could ask me a question, but you choose not to. And now I'm very aware that why aren't you interested in me and all kinds of, right? Dude, all that's kinds so fascinating. Yeah. The misdirection piece, I think is just, uh, is wonderful, right? And I think as uh, we're also, I think we have this perception that, that, um, that, that survival technique that we use, mm. uh, we need to eradicate, right? And I, I listen to that and I go, oh, your ability, to, right, to, to master misdirection. What an asset, like an incredible asset. And if it's the only tool that we use for all situations, it gets us in a lot of trouble and we can start hating that part of ourselves, right? Like for me, that being the center of the, like needing so much attention was obnoxious, right? And yeah. <laughs> I didn't love that part of myself. And yet it's, uh, it's such an important part of who we are and it's an, a brilliant tool in our toolbox. It's just that we have other mu muscles that it's very important for us to explore and learn how to strengthen. So we have, so we can be choiceful and use the appropriate tool for the situation. I love this part of the conversation because I'm realizing that comedy, for example, that each of us possess is like you said, just one tool in the whole toolbox of life that depending on the scenario, the situation, the outcome we desire, we have to show up with, with something. Yeah. And comedy is a, a real tricky subject because I think, um, Oftentimes, we'll find that in a serious situation, people will use comedy mm. to lighten something, but it's actually creating disconnection as opposed to further connection. Comedy can be, can be wonderfully connective tissue, but it can also be used as a tool to create distance. And we have, to, I don't know, just something for us to be aware of. No, that's probably exactly what I fell into. That's another thing. Yes, misdirection. Yes, keep, keep everything away from me. But, but like you said, uh, to keep a distance. How, how does that come about? Why does that happen? How does that happen through comedy? Well, I see it. So we, we do a lot of work in vulnerability and um, it's not unusual that we'll find like when we're in a group setting, um, something will start getting pretty serious, pretty intense, and someone will, will crack a joke. There's always a joke available, right? And if it happens to be something that you see and are good at finding, right? Like there's a natural desire to toss it into the room. And, and, but I think it, when I see it in those situations, it's coming from, the, from some discomfort or the potential yeah. desire to rescue a situation, which actually doesn't rescue a situation. It's just our perception that it will. <laughs> but ultimately, I think it, it, it manifests from discomfort in those kinds of situations. I love the whole uh, theme here now of uh, connection and disconnection. Um, that I, I had shared a quote on my Facebook earlier, and it's, it's from you naturally. Uh, it says, we are all desperate for connection. We want our beauty to be seen in the world, and yet we are articulating ourselves to the world in a way that the world doesn't know how to respond to us. 
That sums up my life. I have always felt disconnected from the world. I always felt alone, lonely, and isolated and wondered why can't anybody just get me? Why can't anybody just, you know, look at me and say, I get it. I get you. I like you and validate me, right? But I'm thinking it's because I was so cut off. What are they supposed to grasp? Um, that's really interesting. What's coming to me as you say that out loud is what I expressed to you at the very beginning of our time together. Um, when you started recording and did my intro, um, my face was starting to, to get that kind of muscle cramp from smiling so much, right? Cause I was just enjoying being with you so much. And I am currently, I feel like we're in a, we're in a, a flow, right? It's like being in the river and it's juicy and delicious to me. Um, and yet, right. I, our, our ability to receive that feedback as human beings, right? When people do see us, right? May, may not be something that, that we've done a lot of muscle flexing around and a lot of practicing. So in some, so is it, is it the desire for validation? This is just a curiosity that's popping up in me. Is it a desire for validation or is it a desire to recognize validation when I see it, truly take it in, not just spit it out or not just create, you know, a boundary to it, but actually, Chew on it, swallow it, and let it let it create some nutrients for me. That's just wonderfully human stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, today uh, I'm I'm much better at all of that, receiving and accepting and knowing. Um, I was just so, like I said, needy, desperate, and insecure back in the day, um, trying to get it externally, um, and it didn't work until I could get it. You know from within. I love it. I mean, I've, even the title of your show really I, I, is, is like touches me deeply in the sense that um, I'm on a journey to support people in wholeness, right? And, and we're going from hidden to wholeness. I, I think it is, a, it is a, a trajectory that, that so many of us as human beings, we're just on, we find pieces of ourselves that people see and recognize. We amplify those. We yes. work hard to strengthen those, right? And, and then we, and we think they're the tool for every job. And over time, eventually, there's, I think, an opportunity for us to recognize. And, and oftentimes, it comes in middle age for some reason. Maybe some people are lucky to get it sooner. But that recognition of um, this isn't everything and the way that I'm approaching this isn't, isn't always helping serve my greatest potential in the world. So, mm-hmm. so that question of how do I become more whole, for me, from a storytelling standpoint, we look at it through the lens of how do I share more of my story so that so that my own wholeness is reflected back to me more frequently. Ideally, it's reflected back so much that I can no longer deny it. And then I start to own it in new ways. Ooh, chilling. Yes. Um, I want you to expand. I think you, you okay. just went there. So talking about this, this quote where uh, you say we're all desperate for connection, et cetera. And then um, what you say in that video is, um, until someone comes along and sees our brilliance and reflects it back to us. Explain that to me a little bit. What does that look like? What does that mean? How do we get that? So that, that is some of um, what I get to play with on a daily basis. It's become kind of my, my, my life. Um, and then it's, I think, so, so that particularly that my childhood, right? I had a mother who, who made it her prerogative to ensure I knew I was special. Mm. Right. So that's totally the mission that I'm on. It was birthed really from that relationship. And so um, I, I think 
we don't have the ability to put that frame around ourselves, as I mentioned earlier, we were talking about earlier. And so, um, so what we do instead is typically what you see, like in somebody's LinkedIn profile, we share our credibility, we share the things that, I, that we want others to admire about us or think that if they know, they'll treat us a certain way, et cetera. Oh yeah, uh, go ahead. <laughs> and yet, you know, our LinkedIn profile very typically does not, does not share our essence in any way. It shares a single dimension of who we are. And if we walk around the world showing people one dimension, how much are we hiding? Right? Mm. The other two dimensions or however you look at that. So that's the opportunity. And, and because we, you know, I, I find I, I had the gift of a mother who, who knew how to, who knew how to infuse that into me. So if you didn't have my mom or a mom like my mom and your, or a person in your life that could be that, um, that might be something that's beneficial. And I'm just a stand for that in the world. So even, even being someone who I like in this interaction can help label what I heard um, as your, as your superpower of misdirection, right. And be able to look at that without judgment from the standpoint of, Oh my gosh, what a fascinating tool that you get to use when it's the appropriate tool for the job and the awareness of what are the other muscles around that to continue to exercise so that you don't use it to your own detriment or the detriment of others. Because I'll tell you, my, my use of my own you know, desire to be special or make or help other people feel special can be a very manipulative tactic, tactic if I'm not careful with it. I can make someone feel special or help them feel special in such a way um, because I want something from them, right? There's a human, human nature that, that mm. that's just going to show up. I got to be really, we got to, we all have to be very careful with whatever superpower that we've developed through survival mechanisms in life. Mm. Now there's something interesting. You've been talking about you at five years old was uh, what was uh, given that gift by your mother of making you feel the center of the universe. I currently, I have two children, uh, a three-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter um, who I do, I do make feel that way. So is that, is that the good or, or was it, was it positive? Uh, it, it carries both um, with light comes shadow. <laughs> Best way I can put it. I think any, any gift that we are, we're all given um, gifts through pain in our childhood. Right. And, and Love I think it. if we, if we look at them um, as a source of pain and don't see that they are a gift, then we live in the shadow of them through the bulk of our life. When we find the ability to connect the dots and determine, oh, that was actually the birth, that was the origin story of my superpower, my survival mechanism. Yeah. In Gestalt theory, we call it creative adaptation, right? How did I creatively adapt to my really crappy situation? Um, so, so during that time, being invisible, right? I had to creatively adapt to what it was to live in darkness during that year when I was five, and the superpower became performance and reading that energy, et cetera. And if used improperly can cause damage to relationships and whatnot. Mm. Um, I want to talk specifically about your company, Roundtable Companies, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. reading, reading its tagline, it says, Roundtable Companies is a storytelling company. Write the book you were born to write. Film your documentary. Draw your story on your walls in art. Unearth the language of your purpose. Shout your customers' successes. Shift your culture by inviting a new story into your organization. Evolve the story of your leadership. Transform your community. 
by allowing others to see themselves in your story. Welcome to the table. <laughs> Thank you for reading that. That's lovely. I appreciate hearing it in your in your in your beautiful performance voice. <laughs> it was it's lovely. I really no, can't can't <laughs> deny it. I cannot deny it. No, and it's man. funny because I do. Um, I I always say that I take all of the technique that I've learned as oh, an actor man. and filmmaker, and I, I use it as appropriately in this medium. There's a lot of transferable skills. I, some of my favorite people that I've met in the world are folks who have taken you know, a past education, something that they have mastered and applied it in a way, right, to a different industry and bring in a fresh perspective. I, I love it. So, so grateful you to, to you for, for bringing yeah. that to the podcast zone, man. Exactly. Uh, there are plenty of people who don't bring such personality and excitement and, and there, there's value on a, di on a different scale. This sure. is fun to share performance energy in, a, in an interview. <laughs> so <laughs> thank, thank you. you exactly. That. Performance <laughs> energy. Exactly. Totally. Uh, but but so, so I think uh, what we said earlier, um, which I've never articulated that way before, but going from, from hidden to whole, yeah. That's really the journey that our company takes individuals and organizations through. Essentially, we're, we're helping to recognize what is special, package it in a way that is not braggadocious, right? That is truly honoring the authenticity of it and also the shadow of what is special mm -hmm. about an organization or an individual um, and creating opportunities for transformation as a result of those stories and bringing that to light. Only when we recognize our shadow side, for example, right, can we start to be more choiceful about how we approach things. So when we're working with an organization or an individual to highlight that special component, there is an aspect of the work that is healing and cathartic because we're helping reflect back to them pieces that they oftentimes have not acknowledged in themselves or that other people have not acknowledged in their beauty. And oh my gosh, yeah that superpower, however all that is manifested in their lives, while also being able to sit with them in non-judgment over when that superpower has been used not for good, right? Mm. And it just, it just is, it's just that there's both Correct. sides of any coin, Correct. right? Just how it shows up. So we're, we're in that space of, of then how do, we, how do we hear those stories? And then how do we package them so that they can feel safe in sharing them, which oftentimes starts internally at an organization that's safer, Right. And then eventually, once it's really well received and beautifully received, oftentimes internally, then they might say, you know what, just share it externally too with the world. And then it be can become the marketing of a thought leader or a brand or an organization. But it really is all about um, that taking steps from hidden to whole. Wow. Whole, is, whole is unreachable in its entirety. Right. But the more that we take steps towards that, the more that we feel seen for all of what we are, I just find the better life feels. Wow. Um, there seems so much to you today. How do you view yourself? Because there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of uh, artistic structure in your work. How do you label yourself? <laughs> Thank you for the question. Uh, and I certainly uh, don't recommend anybody labeling themselves. But yeah, no, right. what I'm saying. It's a tough word, but but um, and yet it's part of life. <laughs> um, so so for so I was uh, I was an actor. For that was my identity for a long mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. And then I had a three-year period where, where I wasn't an actor, but I wasn't anything else yet. And that was a, probably the most challenging part of, of my adult experience. And then I started a company in the first of those three years, but I still didn't identify as a company owner or a business person. That didn't make any sense to me. I just still wasn't an actor. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and, then, and then for uh, almost a decade, probably eight or nine years, um, 
I, I was head down in the business growing the business. And so business person leader became the, the label of my identity. And then in 2014, when I came across Conscious Capitalism and was invited to attend one of their uh, big events, um, I had um, uh, kind of the blinders pulled off through that experience and a couple of other experiences that happened within a short amount of time. And that period at the end of 2014 until today has been integration of the performer who I had pretty much put like put away in a closet. I didn't think that was ever going to come out again. Mm. That was invited back into the picture. So it's been an integration of the performer and the business person. And I'm like three, four years into that and, uh, and starting to, to own the label of artist again. Oh, I love that. Um, the, the brand, The Hidden Entrepreneur, was founded on the premise that I am, like you've acknowledged, thank, thank you for that, the uh, hidden to whole, I can totally resonate with that, um, sure. because I was hiding, in essence, behind fear, fear of everything, and I use that as the excuse to remain there. <laughs> Excuse me, can you tell us about a time when you were hiding behind fear and you had to work through it? Oh, sure. Yeah. The, the, um, there was a period in LA uh, when, when things were outwardly looking successful, mm. but I was feeling inwardly, the word I use is invisible back then, um, you know, sitting in my, literally sitting in my Hollywood trailer and, um, and, and my, you know, my mother or my friends calling me and saying, you're living the dream for, exactly. you know, for all of us. And, and the fakeness with which I res would respond to that and then hang up the phone and, and weep. Oof. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was a brutal time. And, and there was a period of a few years where, where I smoked a lot of pot to escape that. Like I was just getting bitter and, um, and, and had no, uh, no tools in the toolbox to, to meet those circumstances. And so I, I just, I, I was imploding, I think to some degree, um, the, the, the greatest thing of that period of, uh, for that period of time that occurred to me is, um, a woman got in touch with me who I had gone to high school with and uh, we started talking. And then eventually when we were both available, I brought her out to LA and um, for a vacation and um, we ended up starting a relationship and ended up getting married. And before we got married, like in between the, I think it was in between the, the proposal and the marriage, um, I, I finally vulnerably admitted to her that uh, the amount that I was smoking pot. Now, this was a psychologist who worked with troubled kids in an alternative school where pot is a gateway to a much worse behavior. And so she had an incredibly firm boundary with me. You quit this and you quit it now or that's it. I cannot be with you. Okay. And that was such a profound gift to me. Um, and I found in my life when people hold a really firm stand because they care about me and our relationship, it's very impactful to me. Uh, uh, but that was the, that was what I needed. I quit cold Turkey on that day. I quit cigarettes on that day also. And while the, it doesn't, I don't mean to say that the next few years were easy of my transition. That was when I eventually pulled back from acting and, and came back home and had to deal with you know, that, that transformation and that transition. But that time I, I call that, that period of three years when I wasn't an actor any longer, but didn't know what I was going to be was my three, three year temper tantrum where I truly believed that I was going to bend the universe to my will and eventually had to face the reality that it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> wow. It was tough. It was a really yeah. tough three years. Completely get it. Looking back on a younger version of yourself, what advice would you give that person? I struggle with this question. Um, 
Be, because, you know, it's, it's almost like um, for some reason as human beings, we want to save other people from pain, even though we can acknowledge in this conversation, pain becomes superpower. Mm-hmm. It's just this, this weird thing. So I, I, I don't, uh, because I do love my life today, um, uh, I, I think I would observe and keep my mouth shut and not try to change any direct Ooh. course of action. Ooh. <laughs> as hard as that might be, right? Like oh, that's profound. If I, I mean, it would be easy to say, um, um, relax, surrender more, um, be a, be a great listener. <laughs> All the things that eventually you, know, you learn how to do, start work on yourself much sooner. I wish I had, you know, in some ways I'd say, where would I be now if I had started some of my personal development work at a younger age? And yet I, I think I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Exactly. Wow. What a beautiful answer. Thank what you. what mantra do you live by today? Uh, well, uh, I don't have a direct answer for that, but I'll share what comes to mind as you ask it. Um, I, I have the word love tattooed on my mm-hmm. arm here. Mm-hmm. And this was an intentional act because I knew I needed to behave more from love than I had been. And I knew that one way to do that was to put it in my face in a way where Outwardly, people could judge me if I was not living in alignment with this ink on my arm. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know that I entirely realized that that's what I was doing. Uh, but for some reason, I thought when I got it that for years, I'd be wearing long sleeve shirts. And it became a very outward declaration quickly. <laughs> uh, uh, brilliance is another one, um, which, which to me, I define as um, the, uh, having the magic, that intangible stuff that pulls us to the edge of our seat. So, so I live from the standpoint of um, behaving from love in my connections and my relationships and, and striving for brilliance in mm. the work that I do and, and the way in which I serve through what I create, which is also through the relationships that are manifested. You know, so the love and brilliance to me are, are very intertwined. So that's what's coming to mm. me as you ask the question. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? I don't know that I believe it happens for a reason, but I do. Uh, I do believe there is meaning to be made from everything that happens. Exactly. Very, very similar to my theory, which is all this all is, right? Uh, what do we know? <laughs> what do what we do, know? What do uh, I know? I don't know yes. a darn thing. <laughs> don't know anything. Try, trying, to, trying to make sense of it all. <laughs> I know. Right. Maybe trying to, um, you know, pretend you do and, and see what sticks. Right. But who knows? I like, I like feeling like I know what I'm doing. Right. And yet the more that I uh, learn the, of course, it's, you know, it's, I think a pretty traditional saying, the more we learn, the more we know, we don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I certainly feel that that is, that is true. And yet I, um, my ego does hold tightly to the things that I think I know. Mm. Um, I don't know why I'm connecting this, but something you said that was uh, really cool about social media much earlier on was the fact that so much of what we tend to do is put out what we think we, we want others to, to view us as, or what was mm-hmm. the statement? Uh, we put out into the world what we believe the world needs to see to help us get where we want to go. Yeah, no, that's, th- th- there's so much to that. And I guess you just have to, yeah. It's a wonderfully human default, right? And I, and I think um, in my journey, uh, it's, it, it, it's been a default as much as in anyone else's. And 
there, there came some points where awareness that it's a default created options. Mm. See, it's interesting because I, um, I, I'm very aware of uh, what I put out. I'm sure like most of us, I'm very aware of what I put out on Facebook, for example. Um, my children are very instrumental to me. I love that role of father and I, I, I credit that um, helping to reflect back and get me into the, into the path that I've always needed to be through my adoring children. So I, I, I'm very proud of them and I like showing them online, um, appropriately, but in that, in that way, an example is, um, let's say Valentine's day. Um, I had a great picture of my daughter. She made me this adorable card and she was holding it up and I took a picture of it. So I felt like I could have posted that and said something like, Oh, my, my sweet Valentine and boom, a hundred likes. Right. And that would have been sure. it. But instead what I chose to do was sort of go deeper and express what it means and what it's about and what I've learned and what I can share. Is that sort of a, a win? I don't, I, I don't pretend to have the answer to this. I just, I know it's, it's, it's so complicated. I know internally for myself, it's, I find it very, very complicated uh, because we, we can't avoid what we know. Right. And, and there are certain things that, that we know that, that when we post, there's a certain likely perception that we can get from that. Exactly. Right. And even if it's authentic, right? Like I, I, I have a lot of resistance in myself. I, I, we grew up, um, we were a Jewish family, but we grew up um, um, kind of lower middle class, certainly not poor. We didn't want for a lot, but we also didn't have a lot of extras. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I have a, I have a perception. You know, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier that um, uh, where I live now is kind of a hoity toity, you know, Jewish area on the North shore of Chicago that we literally used to make fun of when we were kids because we found it obnoxious. Right. And while I don't have a deep rooted, um, uh, relationship to the community. It's where we live because it's where my wife uh, worked. Um, but the, the, I have an awareness now that, that I have resistance to posting things on social media that might be perceived as obnoxious mm. promoting success. Right. So mm. just the other day, um, traveling first class on a plane. And I had this moment, like usually, like I like to post sometimes when I travel and yet I've been traveling so much lately and traveling like I'm taking, I get taken care of when I travel. Um, there's this piece of me that really feels obnoxious and I, I don't see myself as obnoxious. And so I meet this resistance. So I just don't share anything. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm just paying attention to my own awareness of the experience. And it is complicated. Just as I love it. I, I, uh, I love that. Uh, we went down that, uh, little, uh, little side path for a minute. Thank you for going there. It goes where it goes, right? <laughs> let's, let's turn around for a minute and uh, go down this road. Are well, you spiritual or religious in any ways? Um, I, I rejected the religion of my Jewishness after my bar mitzvah, um, taught to pray to God um, in a language I didn't understand. I can, I can read Hebrew. Back then I could write Hebrew couldn't tell you what the hell I was saying right. during the prayers. I and it. so after my bar mitzvah, um, I, that made no sense to me. It didn't make sense to, that God would want that for me. And so I, I, I kind of took all um, spiritual wisdom and rejected it. 
Um, only in the past year or so have I opened myself up to spiritual wisdom again from experts, you know, rabbis and, you know, and, and philosophers and, and teachers of all kinds of religion um, through some programs that I'm involved in. And even I've, I've got some great friends who are, um, um, who are uh, priests and ministers now. And I would not have opened myself up to those relationships, I think, in the past, just because that was really tenuous for me. I've always, you know, I'm, I'm a typical Gen X. I've always felt spiritual, but not religious, you know. Um, <laughs> I love the tradition of our culture. I love, I feel the, um, you know, that, that whole thing my mother infused me with, that specialness. When I, when I look at the grounding of, our, of the Jewish people and the, and, and, the shoulders that I'm standing on, I feel a huge responsibility, right, to honor um, the, the 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 people who who got me to this to this place. Um, but I don't feel a strong tie to um, to religion in general. But like I said, I'm I am questioning that more, and I've been more open recently, particularly because I took an assessment around. There's a thing called spiritual quotient. There's IQ, there's EQ, there's a bunch of Qs, there's spiritual quotient. And I took the assessment and talked to the woman who founded it. Her name is Cindy Wigglesworth, brilliant woman. And that was her primary feedback for me after my assessment was that, um, that opening myself back up to that would be beneficial in my life. And I took it very seriously. Hmm. What do you believe happens when it's all over, when our time here on earth comes to an end? My gut response is that it's just over. I, I don't, um, I don't know. That, that's, that's, I think as far as I can take it, it doesn't, I, ha I haven't made sense of, I know that, that we're spiritual creatures and, you know, from the big bang, like we've all got parts of that in us, molecules and like, I understand the science of things like that. So I think we carry on, but in terms of our consciousness, um, I've never been attracted to the idea of heaven. To me, it always sounded really boring. <laughs> where everything is great all the time. Like life is full because there's light and shadow to me. And I, as someone who explores the shadow and is fascinated by the shadow, mm. a place where there's no shadow doesn't really have a lot of appeal. Mm -hmm. I also don't want to live in a place where it's only shadow without light. That sounds horrible too. Right. So, so that, I've never been drawn to uh, the, the, the heaven or hell scenario. Uh, if there was something else, my gosh, uh, uh, what an amazing moment that would be for me at, at, at my end. Cause I, I don't think I'm expecting that. What a fascinating um, answer there, too. Um, I will leave you with this final question. Corey Blake, how would you like to be remembered? I'd like for people, uh, as a result of either being in a relationship with me or being in a relationship with uh, my work or the work that maybe has manifested as a result uh, of my having been here um, for people to feel seen. Uh, if that's what people take away, whether they, whether they even know that's that I am the impetus of that or not, uh, the more of that, that I can ripple outward, uh, the more I feel like I'm living in alignment with what I'm meant to do. Well, so far, so good. I have felt completely seen during this uh, interview. Absolutely serious. And my goodness, um, I, I feel like we hit upon at least a dozen solid topics in and of themselves. I mean, so many just like chunks 
of amazing topic that we covered. You feel that? I I did. And and kudos to you for for kind of following the energy and knowing where to go deeper and where to transition. Uh, It was a a blast to be, I, I like, I really enjoy being a first follower. No joke, you know, the whole first follower methodology. Um, well, you're looking at me like you don't, the, the, every leader needs a first follower. There's no second or third without a first, right? And so, you know, you're, you're kind of in the dance, you, you know, you're, you're leading. And I, I love being with someone who leads because I lead through a lot of my life, right? And so I appreciate that you, you were a great director. When I can just be the actor, I need a great director. When I can be the actor, that's fun for me. So thank you. Wow. Yes. Thank you, sir. And thank you, uh, everybody, uh, spending your time tuning in. If you got something out of it, take a small piece of action and put something good forward into the world. Just take that next step. That's all that matters. We're going to take the next step and have another episode not too far behind. Until we do, thank you for tuning in and go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.